0: Doesn't show up in a lot of places. It doesn't show up in uh, Sunday school material uh, in a lot of ways. It doesn't show up in youth talks. Doesn't make its way into sermon material. This is a horrible story. And not just for the physical cruelty that is exhibited, but also the harm that reverberates throughout the entire account, beginning to end. Even when a small level of care is expressed early in the text, and I'm thinking here at this point about verse 3, those tender words that the Levite imagined he would say to his concubine in order to bring her back home. Even when you have those, they're quickly replaced with the rest of the story. This man instead finds uh, his time and his hours spent and his words exhausting them with the girl's father instead. The concubine's silence adds to the terror of this story, and particularly as it unfolds she is utterly truly without power she has no voice she has no name she is what we might call a true nobody and what's even more disastrous here is nobody seems to care in fact her anger and her return to her father's house serves as the greatest exhibit that we have in the text of any kind of power that she has and that's quickly extinguished when her father returns her with that same Levite a short time later. But as outrageous and as disturbing as this text begins, it grows more heinous as the narrative continues, including what we've already heard, demands of a deranged mob, sexual violence, both demanded and ultimately perpetrated, and finally, death and dismemberment. This, of course, is, and you don't need me to tell you this, this is ugly stuff. And although the reader may be caught off guard by this level of violence, it shouldn't surprise us that it's here at this point in the book of Judges. We've been readied for this all along. The author of Judges actually has prepared us to see that it was coming to this, so we shouldn't be surprised here that the people have grown more and more depraved as the chapters have gone on and on across this book cycle after cycle generation after generation and this text of course begins with a cue from the author that we should expect absolute mayhem in the words that follow we see that in where it begins there in verse 1 in those days when there was no king in Israel now it doesn't mean if you don't have a monarchy uh, you're gonna become a deranged population that's not what that means at all This instead is a shortened form of a a refrain that shows up throughout the text. We see the the shortened form here in uh, chapter 19. We also see at the start of chapter 18. But its longer form reads this. In those days there was no king in Israel. All the people did what was right in their own eyes. That begins Judges chapter 17 in verse 6. And it will be repeated again in chapter 21 verse 25. Clearly what was right in their own eyes is holy, not H-O-L-Y, W-H-O-L-L-Y, consistent with the account in our text. And it's completely consistent with a people who, quote, did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And that's a refrain that shows up through the first two-thirds of the book of Judges. So again, we should expect this kind of mayhem to show up. We've been readied and prepared to see it. And our reading here is one example, amongst others, of the depraved in those days section here in the latter pages of Judges, but the story itself draws on two familiar stories, actually draws on two earlier stories that are passed down uh, to us from the book of Genesis. The first of these stories is in Genesis chapter 24, and that story is one where we are presented with a servant who is sent out to locate a wife for Abraham's son, Isaac. When he goes out, it's clear that throughout that particular account, if you read that chapter, you'll see that God's favor is with him that divine favor is with this servant in his mission so much so that he uses that as a reason not to delay his time spent uh, with the future bride's family he stays for just one night and then he goes but he says the reason for that is because of the divine favor that has been with him throughout this refusing to be delayed is quite the contrast to what we find in today's reading where we see that this might be by design. The second story we see is also in Genesis, Genesis chapter 19. It's probably a story that you're more familiar with. It's the story of Sodom, where a mob that looks to perpetrate sexual violence on visitors to their community, the master of the house looks to appease the crowd, but also denies the demands of that mob, offering instead his own daughters in exchange for safe passage of his guests. The mob, of course, rejects that offering and quickly turns more violent and wishes uh, to really violate and hurt the master of the household. Had it not been for divine intervention in that story, where these two guests, these angelic beings, uh, blinding the crowd in effect, the mob might have succeeded. This all sounds similar to what we find in the latter portion of our text, where a mob demands to perpetrate such violence. And that's probably by design as well. Intertextuality is the technical term we use here. Intertextuality talks about uh, using uh, multiple stories Uh, in your later story if you allude to an earlier story uh, it's by design and by it's intended to be purposeful so that you as the reader would then go back to those earlier stories and you would combine and contrast those look for the differences that exist because it teases out even more meaning that the author intended here and that's what we see here in our particular text It's an intertextuality that tells us that there's something big not to be missed here as we look at the Genesis account. There's a message to be heard, as it were, and it points loudly to a noticeable and troubling absence of God in the judge's story. The stories that earlier that are drawn from in Genesis, God is clearly present. Divine activity is clearly seen there, and the people in the story are benefits of that activity. But in Judges, God is silent, painfully silent, I might add. That's a big difference. David Penchansky uh, calls this an important societal critique at this point. He'll note, this is a retelling of the same story that results in dissimilar outcomes because the Israelite societal structure has broken down. The time of the Judges is inferior to that of their ancestors. And I'll write here, and in fear of time serves as a breeding ground for despicable behavior. And we see that in our story. Now we see in our own uh, time, in our own age, we see stories that, that tell us about what happens when you live in such a breeding ground, in such a time. Uh, I think one that's probably really familiar to most of us is the story of Pinocchio. Right? You know Pinocchio, right? Who doesn't know Pinocchio? Anybody not know Pinocchio? Oh, did I see that? No. You know Pinocchio. Come on, Larry. You know Pinocchio. If you remember this uh, Disney film Pinocchio, you probably remember Pleasure Island. Remember Pleasure Island? And it's that place where the boys go to indulge in a life without limits, uh, where the forbidden and taboo uh, become commonplace. That is until a boys begin to turn into donkeys, right? They start turning into donkeys. Or more closely, they become jackasses, right? That's what they become. Something happens in them, they conform to the environment and age in which they live. They become something else. They are transformed by that experience, by that life. When the violence has subsided and the Levite has dismembered his concubine in our text to broadcast the evil that has been perpetrated on his household, this particular person asks a question that points to the deterioration of God's people, and we see that in verse 30. Has such a thing ever happened since the day that the Israelites came up from the land of Egypt until this day? he's talking about transformation he's recognizing that something's happened that the people of God have turned into a bunch of jackasses and he's asking that question at this moment the answer of course is that this people rescued by God taught to live according to God's law are instead in full dereliction of duty at this point now Jesus is asked at one point in the Gospels what is the greatest commandment and you may recall his exchange in Matthew chapter 22. He answers, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind, drawing back on Deuteronomy chapter 6. He goes on, this is the greatest and first commandment. And a second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. And over the years I've heard this described uh, as the vertical, love the Lord your God, uh, and the horizontal, love your neighbor, dimensions of the faithful life. Right? So you love God. And you love your neighbor, right? Vertical and horizontal dimensions. It's clear from our account that the people of this story, the people at the time of the judges here, that they got this horizontal dimension completely wrong. And we don't even get into the vertical dimension because that's not even mentioned in the text. They've gotten things all wrong. Of course, if you back up to chapter 18, one chapter earlier, we find idol worship, literally idol worship, not not worship, but worshiping objects that have been made a clear violation of the vertical dimension. Amidst such violations, of course, we know there's an effect on the perpetrators. Pinocchio tells us that, Romans chapter 1 tells us that. And so we see that, that worship, the worship of people can be corrupted by the age in which they live. You might remember in Prince Caspian, Lucy, who wonders to Susan, wouldn't it be dreadful if someday in our own world, at home, men started going wild inside, like the animals here, Of course, the more terrifying prospect she imagines goes something like this. And they still look like me so that you'd never know which were which. There's a going wild that can happen to us as people. The story in our text is supposed to sound a bit ridiculous. It's supposed to sound over the top. It's supposed to shock us. It's supposed to trouble us. And then we go on to hear this dismemberant and gruesome broadcast. That follows suit as well. That shocks us even more. And It was intended to shock the people in that day. And we, like the ancients, are to take this seriously. That we are to reckon with sin as being a serious, serious thing. The cycle and judges of God's people returning to doing evil in the sight of the Lord and suffering the due consequences time after time we've heard that throughout the series it's also a cycle even though we oftentimes try to make it an individual thing it's also a cycle of violence and harm to others we don't just destroy ourselves in the process we destroy everyone around us so what do we go with that what do we do with this type of warning well the first thing is this the violence has to stop it has to stop Our text speaks of incredible violence and a very real victim. But the story isn't an isolated one. The late Elie Wiesel, that survivor of the Holocaust, uh, notes this. He wrote, I swore never to be silent whenever and wherever human beings endure suffering and humiliation. We must take sides. Neutrality helps the oppressor, never the victim. Silence encourages the tormentor, never the tormented here's the thing people of good conscience and good faith take sides now I know our president currently in the United States has attempted amidst the conflict in Ukraine to be one who speaks out and reveals the inner workings that are going on and to say here's the the things we've learned about the plans of Russia and that's one of these places of speaking out it's an attempt to speak out to avoid conflict, to avoid harm, to expose these type of things. But our natural tendency oftentimes is to be silent, to hide, to cover up. At the same time, I've already said this, we have to take sin seriously. We have to take it seriously. The great 19th century preacher Spurgeon uh, called sin the greatest evil in the universe. The greatest evil in the universe. So no confusion there, right? There's no confusion there it's the greatest evil. And the reader of our text is drawn to this particular note at the very end of our reading, in which the writer here says, consider it, take counsel, and speak out. Our translation, of course, captures this as being part of the message that has been be reported to the tribes. But there is some evidence that this actually stands as a call from the author to the reader to consider in conjunction to what they have now read. That it's not just a word to go out to with the various pieces that were sent out to the people, but it's word to us as readers. This is a story that's to be remembered, and it's enjoined with that great story of the Exodus. Think about the Exodus is a story that's remembered throughout the ages of God's victory, of rescue, of God's people. And here in Scripture, we have a story that's enjoined with it. We are to remember the best of times, and we're to remember the worst of times as well. No cover-ups no disappearances no attempting to make ill-fitting garments to cover our shame if I could borrow illustration from Genesis the fear of course in all of this is what happens if others know what happens if God knew my heart what happens if it's found out what I've done if people then know what I've done or who I've been or what I've thought would I not be subjected to what we'll read in the next chapter as the judgment that's placed on the people of Gibeah? Well, if that's where you find yourself this morning, let me offer a closing story here for you. This other story says this You were dead through the trespasses and sins in which you once lived. You were dead. Following the course of this world, following the ruler of the power of the air and the spirit that is now at work amongst those who are disobedience that's who you were all of us once lived among them in the passions of our flesh following the desires of flesh and senses and we were by nature children of wrath like everyone else that's who we were but the story goes on but God who is rich in mercy out of the great love with which he loved us even when we were dead through our trespasses Made us alive together with Christ. And that makes all the difference. Because by grace you have been saved. You heard the story before? Someone should write this down. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. Is the gift of God. Not the results of works, so that no one may boast, for we are what He has made us. That's transformation. That's renewal. That's something different. Created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand to be our way of life. Not to be Judges 19, way of life, but be a different kind of people. So as we close uh, this series on judges. And we prepare ourselves for what's to come in the coming season of Lent we do well to remember that we have a hero we have a hero who has rescued us and has called us and transformed us to be a people that live differently and if you haven't experienced that in your life if you come into this space and you find yourself looking more like Judges 19 day after day and you want to be somewhere different Our call is to come and follow after that hero who welcomes us and gives us the invitation to come. Sin makes us something else. Grace makes us something more. May we be that something more in the days and the season ahead. Amen. Let us pray together.